Hello, thank you for joining us. It's another episode of Friendly Reminder. It's your weekly friendly reminder of what's going on around the world, in our lives, and everything in between. My name is Gus. It is September the 24th, and I'll be your host for the evening. Uh, as always, I do have my two dear friends here with me. Daniel, how are you today? Good, Gus. How are you doing? Doing pretty good. And Sam, how are you? I'm really good today. Really good. Glad to hear it. Uh, but folks, today is actually a very special day because we do have our first guest. Uh, to us, he is another very dear friend to, um, to us. He, in case our listeners don't know, we've all been friends for decades. Decades? Yeah, decades. Uh, but I want to introduce Nack, and that's spelled N-A-C-K, not to be confused with the very famous video game character, <laughs> Nack 2. Uh, yeah, but Nack, you know, uh, I want you, in your own words, to go ahead and introduce uh, yourself to our audience, to our listeners. So go right ahead. Hi, uh, I'm Nack. I am, like like he said, I've been friends with these guys for a long time. Uh, I guess I'm here in the capacity of a, not just a political analyst, that's not really what I mm -hmm. am at all, but also uh, we're going to talk gaming today. And being a, well calling myself a game developer, um, Little Doctor Games, Twitter and Twitch, check us out. Right now we're making a game called Pulsar Crash, a twin stick 1v1 or competitive shooter. And you guys are behind the remake of Tony Hawk, right? Yeah, well, mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, we just shipped that last month and- uh, That was just you? Sales have been really good. <laughs> it was just, yeah, me and a little bit of other work from- Pretty uh, impressive. People. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we're going to use your uh, video game expertise later on in the show, uh, so stay tuned for that. But for now, we're going to rely on our expertise, which is screaming into the empty void as <laughs> as our country just falls apart uh, around us. Uh, we do have a lot to cover, but we would be remiss if we didn't discuss the most recent um topic that that came up which is the the verdict regarding the the death of brianna taylor um it just came out yesterday and no officers were uh were charged regarding to the death of brianna taylor um directly there wasn't a, a charge regarding i believe the term is wanton endangerment uh which was applied to one of the officers or one of the i think he was actually a detective that uh caused uh, endangerment to uh, Brianna Taylor's neighbors uh, when when uh, he he shot in in that apartment and it actually some of the bullets went towards uh, went to the uh, the neighboring apartment that's it um, the the two cops actually responsible for the death of Brianna Taylor uh, no charges whatsoever we've shared a lot of thoughts here in regards to What's been going on with the social unrest pretty much since uh, since this podcast started, and we've all shared or expressed our thoughts. Sam, Daniel, I know we've shared a lot during these last couple of months. So, before we share our own thoughts regarding this turn of events, Nack, since you are our guest and this is the first time you're on on the show, I want to give you the opportunity to really express what you think, what's going on, whether you want to. Do it broadly regarding the social unrest since March, or a little bit more narrow regarding the Breonna Taylor case specifically. But whatever you want to say, you know the the floor is yours. Well, I think it's it's interesting and it's sad that 
we find ourselves in this exact same situation again, you know? Um, and I think it's, it's unfortunate that it, to me, it seems like the trend is that people are, it's not getting better, right? Things are getting worse. Uh, in terms of the way that people are reacting to these situations, especially with regards to like the attitude towards protesters and this idea that th there seems to be this idea, especially on the right, but also kind of just permeating a lot of, of what I see and hear in mainstream media that protesters are somehow in the wrong or that they, they get lumped in with rioters. What we've seen in general over the past few months, I think, but uh, it's unfortunate. And it's the, a lot of the rhetoric on the right has been uh, directed at demonizing protesters and, and again, lumping them in at, or characterizing them as violent and rioting and looting and destroying property. When it seems like, I mean, it seems like that's not the case. It seems like if anything, the the vast majority of protests that have been going on have been peaceful and that's and i don't want to i don't want to um all protests necessarily need to be peaceful in order to be legitimate be legitimate right yeah in other words if if a protest does turn violent i don't think that delegitimizes it um that would delegitimize a lot of the civil rights protests and a lot of right. the um you know, gay rights, Stonewall. Right. It, 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 it seems like the attitude of the, even, even the, the political center, you know, moderate political view is that it, the focus becomes on the protesters and not what they're protesting. And it, it's something that we've, we've discussed here with, regarding uh, moderate's opinion on the protest, which is simply, it's one of two things, right? It's either uh, don't do it or do it in quote unquote, at, uh, the right way at the right time. Yeah. Which when it comes to civil rights, when it comes to human rights, there's no such thing as the right way at the right time. Like it's, it's immediate, it's, 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 it's something we need always right now. And it's not gonna. It's never gonna be comfortable for for those that already in power or already in, under privilege. It's always gonna be something that's gonna be hard to watch because it's hard for them to live their lives as they should. Uh, Brianna Taylor, in case there there are listeners that don't know, was home with her boyfriend uh, when the cops came in. And uh, there's been conflicting reports, but really, I think most witnesses have said that they they had. The officers had a no-knock warrant, uh, but mo and most um, uh, most witnesses have said that they did just go in without knocking. One did say that uh, they did knock. Either way, they they pretty much went into the apartment, and the end result was her unarmed, dead at at the end of the night. So, if you can't be home alone, unarmed, and and not end up dead. Then what exactly can you do? Like, how can you live your life, right? Like, I also don't think they found anything in the apartment, any kind of contraband or anything like that. 
No, I believe the warrant. The reason well, they, they were able to obtain the warrant was because it was in regards to Brianna Taylor's ex boyfriend, who, yeah. from what I've seen from reports, no longer lived in that household. Um, yeah, and it, it was her current boyfriend who was there with her at the time, who did have a gun, but yeah, obviously the the cops barged in there. It was a quote unquote raid. Uh, it's hard not to blame somebody for wanting to de de defend themselves. Last I checked, that was a whole point from from right wingers, right? Like that's that's the reason, that's the and not just right wingers. That that's literal... that's literally the reason. Correct me if I'm wrong. I could be wrong on this, but I think there the the guy they were actually serving the warrant to try and find was already in police custody at the time that they were uh whatever what is it called serving the warrant or executing the warrant i could be wrong on that uh, i don't know that, yeah, that i have not i don't know about that okay well in, in any event in any event yeah and i mean yeah, I don't obviously this like if you switch the roles on this if this is a white couple this is instantly immediately a completely different story right like i mean it it, it doesn't even it doesn't even go down this yeah. way if this is a white couple right um yeah there would be no attempt to just barge in there knocking or no knocking yeah. there would be probably a longer process to obtain a warrant uh, a little bit more careful investigation and not such reckless uh, recklessness that ended up with the life of a 26 year old woman uh, being taken away um, so like, so that all happens, right? And then, how many months later? Four months. Yeah, uh, it, 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 this happened in March. So the entire summer, um, and I'm sure all of us here and many of our listeners uh, heard the line "arrest the cops that murdered uh, or killed Brianna Taylor." That's been the line all summer long. All summer. Um, and I think it's. What I feel about this, and I'll just try to say this very quickly, is to me, the most shocking thing is how predictable all of this is. And I know that sounds like an oxymoron, but what I'm trying to say is that the fact that this is just so systemic, it's just so obvious now, it's just so built into the system uh, that these cops can do this and get away with it, that it doesn't surprise me anymore. And that's sad to me. That's that's sad and shocking that I'm no longer surprised by this when it should always demand uh, shock and anger and frustration. Um, and it, it almost seems cruel because the person that was charged was the one not at all involved with the, the passing of Breonna Taylor. We arrested the cop that put bullet holes in an apartment building and not the cops that murdered Breonna Taylor. It reminds me yeah, something insane, of like though. the normalization of mass shootings where we, we get into this whole cycle of just there's a mass shooting, we all freak out, then there's sadness, thoughts and prayers, and then everyone kind of forgets about it. We don't do anything, we don't change anything. And then there's a mass shooting again, and we start the cycle over again. It's a little like that. Um, starting to feel like that. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it's a it's sort of a testament to how much how much normalization of terrible things you can have, whether it be a pandemic uh, raging through the system kind of freely, or... Or an idiot president. Yes, or an idiot president. <laughs> or just the brutalization of Black people by the police in a systematic way. To, to bring it back to the protests and the... I, I, I hesitate to even call it social unrest because... 
that presumes that there was social rest in the first place. And like, like things right. have not been okay. You know what I mean? Like things have not been okay. It's just that they're, they're now people are bringing that pain out to the forefront for people to view and it's making people uncomfortable. Uh, obviously Louisville, Kentucky saw this coming because they, uh, uh, implemented a curfew. And the thing about protesting is that it's gotta be when, I mean, they, you can't put a curfew on protesting. The whole point of a protest is to be noticed. You know, if, if they're, yeah. if they're trying to stifle not if i mean that's what they're doing they're trying to stifle and uh silence these voices it reminds me of the joke in arrested development where the free speech zone where it's this like small five by five gated area in the middle of nowhere it's like this is your free speech zone Dude, enjoy your freedoms <laughs> like it's just i guess to bring it back around to my point about how protesters are being made to look like the bad guys in this situation is infuriating and frustrating and makes the situation feel so hopeless because what el what other means do people have to fix this situation than to peacefully protest and when those when when those peaceful protests are are characterized as violent and riots and and looting it it's it's in an attempt to delegitimize them and it in the eyes of of the system it justifies cops being assholes and beating the shit out of these people and i agree and if, if people can't worse, peacefully, right? yeah and if people can't peacefully protest uh, or they need to protest the right way or every time they do protest they get mocked at one point uh shouldn't you expect that they're going to resort to other means because you've you've taken away the one thing that you said was right but you mocked it and you shouldn't be shocked when there's there it's the use of the last resort right right but um you know before we move I mean, on it's very so, somewhere... i was oh? just about to say sam uh, any additional thoughts that you may have yeah, it's very similar to the original like civil rights um, protest, where people would just say, "Oh, it's just a phase. It's it's not going to go anywhere." But I mean, well, they would say that the, like... the protests are actively sabotaging the movement. That's what the moderates said that the yeah the demonstrations and protests were actively going to hurt people's quest for rights. Is what they said of course total bullshit but yeah yeah and it's i don't know just it's, another it's depressing all the way around yeah and it's just another very obvious example that sometimes we're just going back and not at all going forward um speaking of which um ruth bader ginsburg um she is still dead um unfortunately uh we it was not some horrible dream uh, that we woke up from or some horrible nightmare. She still dead, as it turns out. And as we mentioned in the previous episode, no surprise, the Republicans were extremely quick to act. Uh, and in a matter of days, I want to say almost over the weekend, uh, really by Monday or Tuesday of this 
uh, week, they uh, it was pretty much confirmed that McConnell has enough votes to pass uh, her uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's replacement. Uh, picked by Senate Republicans. Uh, Chuck Grassley, Mitt Romney, um, Senator Gardner, I forgot his first name, from Colorado, have all said that they are going to vote for the... for the no- Well, they're going to vote based on the nominee's qualifications, but obviously we know what that means. So we're, we're going to get a replacement very quickly. We don't know yet who it is, but most, uh, most sources point to Amy Coney Barrett. I don't know much about her, but uh, Daniel, I'm sure you've learned or have heard some things about her past or about her career. So do you want to go ahead and give us some insight about RBG's possible replacement? Yeah, she's incredibly conservative, uh, as you might expect. Um, She's very young. She was born in 72, so she's going to be on the court for a very long time. Um, You know, there's been a lot of talk about her kind of up her sort of religious upbringing it, it's catholicism but it's not mainstream catholicism it's called uh oh god actually now uh, charismatic catholicism i believe it's a little more like the protestant version of catholicism there's a lot more kind of protestant things like speaking in tongues um a lot more sort of intervention directly into um, individuals' lives, like they have this system, and this is actually funny because they called it a handmaiden uh, before uh, the Handmaid's Tale, uh, which made them uh, change the name of that. Now they call it a female. I think they call it a a woman leader um, now, but it was basically a person who could sort of lead you and be your like uh, mentor, but it, they would have like a strange amount of uh, authority over you. Um, I don't want to get. Uh, too deep into this i mean there's a lot about her her decisions she does not have many uh you know, you know she doesn't have a lot of pu- public decisions she hasn't been a judge that long um i do think the whole argument that oh you can't bring up her religion uh it's not fair um is is really dumb because nobody's saying you can't be religious and be on the Supreme Court. Literally, there's like five Catholics on the Supreme Court and and three like Jewish people, and and nobody said anything. Um, it's it's just this, you know, if someone says Catholicism, you can't have it both ways. Catholicism means it either has to be a central part of your life or not. And if it is, then people are entitled to ask you about it, and um, that is just what it is. So that's really all I have about um, Amy Cohen Barrett which is not her name, Amy Coney Barrett. Yeah. Uh, so I guess to summarize all that, we are in hell. Um, <laughs> so this <laughs> so this is going to happen. Uh, it's going to be a 6-3 majority. Uh, she will be, or if she ends up being the nominee, but if not, then it's going to be some somebody equally conservative. But if she ends up being the nominee, she will be, the, I believe, the youngest Supreme Court justice at age 47, I believe. So she's she's going to be on the bench for a very long time. Like in so, history, the youngest? youngest no, I, be, I believe right now. Oh, okay. This is a reality. This is going to happen. And the, we have to wonder exactly what is it that that can be done. What we can do, obviously not we directly, but what, what can be done as a whole to somehow uh, mitigate or fix this. And the only option, of course, right now is to vote and hope for the best come November. And that's terrible. <laughs> yeah. And 
the best come November would be Biden winning the presidency and the Democrats obtaining the Senate majority while keeping the House, which is a possibility. It's not particularly um, that unlikely either. I mean, if, if you look at models or if you look at polls, it's within the realm of possibility. So what I'm about to go into is I want to put a disclaimer first, because we're going to be dealing with a big if. We're going to be dealing with if the Democrats win the Senate, if the Democrats keep the House, if Joe Biden wins the presidency, what should they do to fix this very real thing of a 6-3 uh, conservative majority that was largely obtained through Republicans changing the rules and not uh, nominating or not even bothering to, uh, to question Merrick Garland and uh, obviously taking advantage of the very unfortunate passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, which most would say is pack the Supreme Court most liberals would say, pack the Supreme Court and make D.C. and Puerto Rico a state. So I want to go, I want to ask you guys what you would feel. Do you think that's an option? Do you think it's even re remotely a possibility? Do you think there are any repercussions? So, Daniel, what, what I want to start with you. What do you think? First, I want to reflect on how crazy it is that we're talking about packing the court <laughs> and standard for D.C. and Puerto Rico. Yeah. Um, these seemed like sort of almost pipe dreams a while ago. Uh, something, you know, it should be mainstream, but what was not. And now that Republicans have gone so far and the court majority is so twisted up that uh, we are, I think, have a legitimate a legitimate interest in sort of restoring some sort of semblance of balance to the court. Um, it is too too unbalanced right now. You have four justices that were picked by Republican presidents who did not win the popular vote. Your swing justice, once Amy Co uh, Amy Coney Barrett gets on there, is going to be Neil Gorsuch. <laughs> That's going to be the swing justice. <laughs> He's going to be the pivotal. And and John Roberts is going to be on his left, so John Roberts is officially the the left side of the court now. Um, you know, the Supreme Court is the most uh, one of the most important institutions in America, which is you know one of the most <laughs> powerful countries in the world, and thereby affects everybody else tremendously. And um, and now we're going to have a Supreme Court that you know by and large probably doesn't believe in climate change or at least is not inclined to take it seriously um probably believes anything like a modern healthcare system is socialism and and unconstitutional uh probably believes that the first amendment allows you to hand over checks to candidates yeah i, I guess like you said uh, i think we're in hell so anything democrats can do to mitigate the circumstances i think I, th I honestly think we need to just toss norms out the window because that's what Republicans are doing. Now, whether they will, I, I, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think Joe Biden's going to do that. I think Joe mm -hmm. Biden is the kind of person who would just live with a 6-3 split and, you know, just deal with it and get most of his shit struck down and, and you know, gutted, taken apart. Um, but yeah, it's going to cost lives. You know, the Roberts court, struck down the Medicaid expansion, which caused lives, uh, cost lives. So, Yeah, and I don't believe Joe Biden has also made any kind of statements regarding... He did make one back in 2019 that he's not for it. Um, there has been no updated statement uh, so far in this uh, campaign. I, I don't know if that's going to be asked in uh, next week's debate. 
I and, and I'm going to ask you, Matt, because I, you're one of uh, you're a fairly leftist individual that's not particularly um, uh, enthused with Joe Biden or the the vast uh, you know the the vast group of Senate and and uh, House Democrats. So, do you see any possibility that even if we get what seems to be the best case scenario now, uh, um, uh, Joe Biden presidency? Senate majority in the House and in the Senate. Do you think this is an actual possibility or do you think we're just pipe dreaming here? So you're saying, uh, are we talking if they would, the if they have that everything. Biden does win? Okay. Yes. So if they have everything they need, will they make the decision to pack the courts is to pack the Supreme Court? Exactly. Is the question. Um, yes. You know, honestly, it's really hard to say. Because I think there, I think that Biden will come under a lot of pressure um, from people further left, and even just people who understand that this is how the game is being played now, um, and who might realize that, or, or who might share the belief that this is what needs to be done. Um, but also, I could I could totally see him just playing the middle and cruising along and being happy with his presidency. Um, I've got a civics question, though. What checks do does Congress have over the Supreme Court? Because I don't know. So, uh, you know, I don't know offhand, but uh, they, they technically can, I mean, they set the number of seats. They control the court's jurisdiction, which means which cases get cases. to the court. It's, it's a lot of power um i think a lot of the stuff we think inherently comes from the constitution actually comes from very old acts of congress that are still around uh, okay the judiciary act of 70, 1778 comes to mind that's something that's still that's still in in law deep pull there and yeah the primary check that the that congress has against them is you know they get to control a lot of aspects of them they just don't really use that control Right. Um, understandably, you wouldn't want to see that happening too often. Right. Sure. Mm -hmm. But if if but I, I guess the reason I bring it up is if Democrats were able to take the House and Senate. But Joe Biden still loses. Because because if the court decides that Joe Biden loses, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, but if if the Senate and the House are won by Democrats, does that help to mitigate some of this? I Most mean, likely they, not. Can they, uh, no? Hmm. I don't believe so. I mean, correct me if, I, if I'm wrong, Daniel, but even if they vote to, so. to expand the Supreme Court, I'm assuming the presidency or the president has the right to veto that, and then it's going to require the 64, 65 votes. Yeah, the two-thirds vote, which... Yeah. And, and I actually even want to say, because everything that we just mentioned... Also needs a, a step before that. Um, again, if the Democrats get actually get rid of the obtain, filibuster, mm -hmm, they need to get rid of the filibuster, which right. the filibuster has been um, fairly um, neutered uh, since 2012, at least when it comes to judicial confirmations and Supreme Court confirmations. It used to require the 60 vote threshold to avoid the uh, to avoid the filibuster. It no longer does. So, I mean, if we can nominate a Supreme Court justice with a Senate majority, why are we bothering with the filibuster at all with, with other minor things like, I don't know, just simple 
legislative regulations and stuff like that 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 requires a 60 uh, vote threshold and a Supreme Court justice does not. It just seems like we need to be done with it, right? People are still def- like Joe Biden isn't coming out against the filibuster. And in fact, I think he likes the filibuster. Feinstein likes the filibuster. I don't think Schumer has has come out hard against the filibuster, right? Yeah, and you're right, Daniel. There are a lot of Senate uh, Democrats, or I'm sorry, a lot of Democrats in the Senate that have come out against um, uh, removing the filibuster. In fact, actually, Bernie Sanders uh, was not a huge fan of removing the filibuster, at least during his his uh, campaign. I don't, I, I'm sure he's probably changed his mind on that. Uh, I know Elizabeth Warren is in favor of removing the, the filibuster. Uh, I think there's no other play, right? There isn't to me. To me personally, there's no point in in even getting to the to winning the Senate, to winning the presidency, uh, uh, keeping the House, if we're not able to get to these extremes, because the Republicans over this the last four years have, as you mentioned, Daniel, broken many norms, and this the system that we have on our hands now cannot be fixed with just simple legislative procedures it needs it needs like way bigger bolder things including removing the filibuster getting rid of uh i'm sorry adding the two states uh, dc and puerto rico and at least adding two more supreme court justices i don't see any other play other than that so here's my question if we do add puerto rico as a state what about the other territories from the united states like, would they just stay territories? Like, I don't think if we if we start making Puerto Rico a state, per, I mean, well, we don't why have to stop, stop there. there. But Puerto Rico has over three million people, I believe, almost four million people. Like, and they don't have any kind of Senate representation. Uh, DC has about seven hundred thousand people, so combined, they have over four million people, four million taxpayers, four million voters that don't have any kind of Senate representation. So you're right, Sam, like it doesn't necessarily have to stop there, but it should probably at least start there. It's also worth noting that yeah. uh, Guam and American Samoa tend to not want to become states for various reasons, but it's, it's a little more of a com- new, nuanced uh, situation with regard to those those states and, and that situation. But but yeah, I, th- I think Puerto Rico and DC are, are no-brainers. Uh, Statehood and full citizenship of every person in the United States. I mean, it seems dumb to say this, but every person who's a United States citizen, regardless of whether they happen to be Hispanic and they're living in Puerto Rico, they should still be equal. (laughs) Uh, That, yeah, but they're not. Yeah. So, so this is where we are, Um, and we're pretty well into this episode and we haven't even talked about Donald Trump. So I'm pretty proud of you guys. I think it's the longest we've gone without really mentioning his name that much. Uh, but Daniel, <laughs> you just to kind of drive this thing home as to where we are right now, the situation where we are right now and why bold action needs to be taken if we're able to get uh, a different party in charge, you've compiled just a c- couple of things that have either happened these last couple of weeks or have at least been discovered. So I'm going to give you a very special Daniel minute. Not not necessarily a minute, but I want you to go as quickly as you can and just cover all these things <laughs> in the best way you can. So go. There's a lot of shit to cover. Um, and you, I feel like this podcast has a very pro-Trump streak and you've been censoring me, but now I'm going to try to cover as much of this Trump shit. I'm going to try <laughs> to start with the biggest body count, which is Republicans and Trump denying that global warming is happening. 
while the entire state of California is on fire. Uh, that is a thing that happened. And Trump <laughs> went to California and kept talking about how we need to rake the forests better and that's going to stop fires. And then he came up with this anecdote that he keeps going on about how he keeps saying that, that the head of state of some European country, and he keeps saying it's a forest nation, uh, keeps coming up to him and telling him that in, in, in my country, our trees are a lot more explosive than in California, uh, but we seem to be able to take care of it. So the real problem, according to Trump, is explosive trees, not uh, climate change. He also said, I think it's getting cooler when someone suggested that climate change had to do with the the fires. And then someone said, that's not what science saying. And he said, I think science doesn't know. Uh, <laughs> that's our president. Uh, also, somewhat related, uh, there was a story about how during the wildfires, a lot of people were refusing to evacuate, despite the police begging them to, because they wanted to stay and guard their house from Antifa and Black Lives Matter. Uh, the cops kept telling people that these were completely you know, the cops, that famous pro-BLM and Antifa organization, kept telling people that these were fake stories, but people would rather believe the things that they're making up in the head uh, than the flames actually coming for their house. Uh, let's see. Moving on to, I guess, the next thing, which is uh, COVID. Uh, a lot to say about COVID. Let's see. So Trump, in the beginning, did not implement any kind of top-down testing program. Uh, this is seen as, I think, the biggest way that he contributed to debts. Uh, very early on, he ref he let states sort of run their own program, and he this was a very conscious decision. Trump had gutted the pandemic response team in the CDC, and he saw it as a a way to make states do their own thing. Um, very early on, and this is a Vanity Fair piece. Uh, Jared Kushner actually brought multiple um, individuals, about a dozen uh, business uh, individuals, to talk about uh, the COVID, the pandemic response, and this was around the time. This was around March. Um, uh, by the way, in March, Donald Trump scuttled a plan by the post office to send every American family five masks, which would have saved thousands of lives. Just throwing that in there. Okay, going back to the Vanity Fair article really quick. Jared Kushner stood in front of all these luminaries of business and instead of leading them said, the states need to do their own thing. They need to get on the phones and they need to make calls and they need to bid basically against each other. People in the room brought up the fact that they're bidding against each other. And he said, look, they're just not doing right by their people. Basically, he blamed the states. There was a very conscious strategy early on when the coronavirus was going through mostly blue states and, and blue cities to blame the to not do anything about COVID, especially testing, uh, not do anything like that. Uh, but uh, go ahead and just blame Democrats for it because they thought they could get away with that and it would not hit red states, which it did. That's another thing Trump has been doing. He's saying if we take out all the blue states, we have some of the lowest death rates in the world. That, of course, is a lie. It's almost 100,000 deaths only in the red states. You look at the top 10 number of deaths, eight out of 10 of them are red states, not blue states. So, of course, it's a lie. Also, you don't just get to, you know, ignore the blue states. <laughs> That's not a thing that you can do. Um, but apparently, you know, Trump is allowed to do it. Let's see, All what's right. the next thing? That's... You know, I just don't <laughs> one more, one more thing, one more thing, one more thing, one more. <laughs> Please, this killed a lot of people. This killed okay. a lot of people. Okay. There was political interference. <laughs> there was political interference very early on in the COVID epidemic where the Trump administration put on the CDC's website, bypassed all the regular scientific checks and put on the CDC website the following piece of advice that individuals who were exposed to COVID but did not have any symptoms did not have to get tested, which is 
fucking insane. It's not a scientific conclusion. It is a political conclusion. They put that on the website. It confused the shit out of doctors. How many tens of thousands of people died just because of that fucking stupid decision, which they basically, which they reversed about two weeks ago. Um, so until two weeks ago, the CDC was telling people not to test people who weren't symptomatic, which is crazy because it just lets those people wander through society infecting people, uh, which goes back to how Trump didn't implement any kind of testing program. He just let the virus run free in America. Sorry, Gus. <laughs> I had to throw that part in there. <laughs> no problem. If you like, uh, <laughs> grab a sip of water. Uh, relax. <laughs> I hope it, I hope That's this was good. Uh, yeah, thank you so that much. That was like for... the first three things I wanted to hit. I have a gigantic list. You covered a lot of ground there, though. That was awesome. Thank you so much. And again, um, she said something anti, is... really anti-Semitic this week too. Just throwing that in there. Again, I just want to drive the point home. Vote, you know, just everything he just mentioned in a matter of like probably five minutes. Uh, it's it's just news that happens over the last couple of weeks it's just insane that we're bombarded like this so please go vote he's cheering on ali velshi getting hit by rubber bullets by police ali velshi please go vote and vote for joe biden um but let's go ahead and move on so we're all millennials here <laughs> right and right if there's one thing that millennials love besides adulting is harry potter uh, we grew up with Harry Potter. We love Harry Potter. We love Hogwarts. We love uh, what's Hagrid, Hagrid, Dobby, Dumbledore. Um, Daniel, what house are you in? Uh, uh, Gryffindor. You never okay, took cool. the test, did you? So no, I don't think so. I think I'm a Gryffindor, though. That's the good guys, right? <laughs> I don't know. I think you bring some Slytherin energy, but the reason I'm bringing this up <laughs> is J.K. Rowling. She's been in the news um, really several times already, uh, basically messaging a really anti um, um, or really transphobic uh, agenda. Uh, most refer to her as a TERF, which can somebody tell me what a TERF stands for again? Trans Exclusionary Radical Feminist. Thank you. Um, so she's been in the news several times regarding this. And most recently, she is either releasing or has released a book uh, where the essentially the story is somebody who dresses, oh, a man who dresses as a woman goes around uh, killing people, killing men. And I don't even know exactly the, the, the words to, to describe this whole situation, but she's obviously hurt a lot of people with her comments. She's hurt a lot of. Harry Potter fans that are consider themselves allies of the trans community uh, and the L LGBTQ community. And the reason I wanted to bring it up is just to, to have a discussion with you guys about what do you do when you get to this point, right? Like, what do you do if you are a Harry Potter fan? Um, if you are a fan of a creator that created something that really meant a lot to you and their words and their actions are contrary completely contrary to something you you believe in how do you reconcile all those feelings and what do you do going forward do you still do you still partake in in their creations do you still indulge in them thinking that well what are you going to do right you're just a, a one person and 
boycotting this isn't going to do anything? Or do you actually step away and separate, or not separate, no longer separate the creator from the creation and stop, you know, taking in their products or consuming their products? So I'm going to start with my example as the host, and this is my walk of shame. But I've been a long time Kanye West fan, probably since I was in high school. Uh, I've been listening to his albums pretty much since college dropout. Uh, he's had a long history of just being an asshole this whole time. That's that's not something that uh, I was unaware of. I still continue to be a fan because I just kind of felt like everything he did was not enough for me to like not enjoy his music because I very much did. And then came 2016, uh, he started taking things to higher and higher levels. Obviously, uh, coming out as a Trump supporter, uh, wearing the MAGA hat, uh, saying he appearing in the White House, praise, praising the, the president. But even more so, what he's doing right now in his little quixotic attempt to run for president, which we all know he doesn't want to be president. He's not really trying to be president. And he is working alongside GOP operatives to get on the ballot in several states to really essentially undermine the Democratic vote and essentially try to help uh, Donald Trump, which whether he can or cannot, whether him being on the ballot actually affects the vote or not, uh, I don't really care. It's, it's the intention of it all. I ask myself that question. Can I go back to, to the works of somebody that, I, that throughout almost a decade and a half I thoroughly enjoyed, and can I still enjoy it? And the answer, at least for me, was no. I couldn't. I couldn't bring myself to it anymore. It, it didn't even... It wasn't enjoyable anymore because every time I would try to listen to it, everything that's going on right now came to the forefront and I was no longer enjoying it. So that's my example. And I don't know if you guys have an example of somebody that you've either just enjoyed their work or admired their uh, their product. I know we can list several examples, but if any of you guys want to throw something in right now. I think the first thing you have to do, no matter no matter who it is, is question it. Like you can't just be like, you can't ignore it. No matter who it is or no matter what they did, you have to question it first. You have to think about it. You can't just like let it slide and just be like, oh, who cares, you know? But there's this one movie called Moon that has Sam Rockwell and Kevin Spacey in it. And it's a really good movie, and when Kevin Spacey, that Kevin Spacey stuff came out, I wasn't sure I could watch it anymore. But I still, like, questioned, questioned it, and I tried to watch it and couldn't. But, um, yeah, that's my yeah, two Kevin Spacey is a really excellent example of that, because he's, he's a terrific actor, but he's also a horrible piece of shit human being. So. And it just makes his roles. He's played so many creepy dudes. <laughs> now it just makes him like so much creepier. I said it wasn't method acting after all. But I was going to, I was going to bring up Orson Scott card. Cause I think uh, all of us have, have read uh, Ender's game and, you know, it probably meant a lot to us at one point. I don't know about everyone here, but I know at least knack, and I think Sam have read quite a bit of the of the various Ender books and the Beaten Saga, and had enjoyed them quite yeah. a bit. So when he came out as like a pretty hardcore homophobe and uh, somebody who came out, 
you know, spreading some pretty vile things about Obama. But now when you go back and read, it's really funny because everything he says is true, but about Trump. <laughs> uh, you know, he was like, Obama's not going to agree to the peaceful transition of power. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> hey, um, anyway, uh, the, the, the thing that made it difficult with Orson Scott Card is, is that I find Ender's Game and uh, Speaker for the Dead in particular such uh, vi- interesting and sophisticated uh, moral pieces about uh, you know the conflict between cultures, how that can lead to war, and how that's not you know it's not a black and white thing. Um, you know, sp- you know minor spoilers for Ender's Game, but. Uh, the conclusion after the human beings wipe out their mortal enemies, the buggers, is that uh, it turns out that the buggers were never even hostile to the humans in the first place. And it was just a misunderstanding of the cult, the other uh, being that led to basically a genocide. Um, I mean, that's a pretty profound, interesting moral argument and he makes you know similar we read that book in like sixth grade (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. and and, you know speaker for the dead also has similar arguments about you know what what other species and how we interpret you know not species but other cultures and how we interpret things and and it's all very sophisticated to to turn around and, and and realize that scott is kind of a sort of a blunt homophobe <laughs> and and i think it started to really affect affect my reading of the works especially in like the later bean series when a lot of it seemed to be very very preoccupied with uh procreation uh strangely uh which uh if you've read any of scott's essays about uh homosexuality his primary moral issue with it is that it's uh, non uh, non-procreative yeah um so you know sort of taints yeah. those uh, stories for me yeah i haven't read them in a while so i may be misremembering so one of you can feel free to correct me no you're not i read okay. them and Good. yeah you're not it, it was heavy-handed i mean i read them too it, wasn't it mostly just between bean and what was her name it was petra, petra. They, they completely turned her into somebody's whose only desire was to procreate and have babies uh, yeah real fun stuff Nakti, is there anything you'd like to share? Any experience from your fallen heroes of the past? So uh, many of our listeners probably know I'm a bit of a metalhead. Um, Hellbanger on sale now on Steam. <laughs> Go buy it, five dollars. Um, so in 2009, uh, when I first was kind of getting into metal, um, I was uh, it was in the metal news that the uh, former, let's see, actually, I don't even know what he played. He, uh, he was, I don't know what instrument he played in Mayhem. Varg Vikernes, or Vikernes, I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name. Uh, better, probably best known by his stage name, Burzum, or that's his, his uh, solo black metal project. Uh, in the, uh, let, me, let me backtrack, I kind of got ahead of myself. In the early 90s, uh, when the Norwegian black metal scene was kind of at its height, there were a string of church burnings and um, lots of ugly, violent stuff going on in Norway. Uh, and the black metal scene there was was very extreme. And uh, this guy, Varg Vikernes, basically uh, came to believe that the guitarist of his band, Mayhem, had it out for him and was coming to kill him and ended up 
getting to him first and stabbing him to death uh, and went to prison for it. Throughout his serving his term in prison, he released a few albums, again, under the stage name Burzum. Um, and even when he got out of prison, I was kind of like, okay, weird, he's murderer, but he did his time. And I really started getting into those albums. I really got into black metal. Um, and then I started to look more into his beliefs and the kind of stuff that he's put out onto the internet. And it turns out this guy is basically a neo-Nazi. Um, he, uh, I'm just kind of picking stuff off of his Wikipedia page. Um, he, uh, according to a, Ro a Rolling Stone article, he has endorsed neo-Nazi views uh, and uh, and rants against Muslims and Jews, uh, openly embraced Nazism during the 90s. I mean, who didn't? Um, Although, <laughs> right. And it does say that he has uh, since disavowed his ideology with its associated movements. Um, but then after that came out, he uh, released a tabletop RPG in which uh, people, th the races in the game, there's a race that is darker skinned. And literally, if you play a character of that race, the intelligence score is naturally lower than the intelligence scores of other races so there's just kind of that that kind of bullshit Oof. all throughout his work uh he calls his beliefs odalism and advocates a pre-industrial european pagan society um so very nationalist very um do you still do you still shit. ever listen to the he's music mm. yeah you know i do and it's it i'm not gonna say that so I, I actually you're like actually I don't. <laughs> I, okay, so I I don't. Okay, let me let me. It's it's not late, that I Mac, don't out of any sort of yeah. <laughs> cancel me. It's not that I don't because I feel like I have like I'm not compelled morally to not listen to his albums. Um, and I and I still appreciate that I had those albums when I was first getting into black metal. Um. But I've since kind of, my tastes have kind of just naturally shifted anyway. So it's kind of hard for me to say if I would be like, if I was still finding myself wanting to listen to those albums, it's hard for me to say whether I would just not because of yeah. what I know about him. And it's, it's also kind of hard for me to even be able to say whether what I know now about him has maybe somewhat subconsciously turned me off yeah. from his music. But the, the problem with it is that I, I don't think, I mean, everybody loves the music that they love and they love loving the music that they love. And so I, I uh, hold on, I'm getting, I'm getting to it. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I love black metal. I love death metal. And I wonder if I had not heard those Burzum records when I was first kind of getting into black metal, if it would, if I would have been able to, explore the rest of what black metal had to offer and continue to be listening to new black metal that's coming out um without having that stepping stone you know what i mean so like i still appreciate those albums i'll never do anything again i mean i guess you got to also look at like the material component like i'm not doing anything that's making this guy any money yeah. right and i think that's important if you're gonna if you're gonna if you're gonna take a moral stance it's also helpful if your moral stance is is backed by 
the fact that you're not <laughs> buying records and buying tabletop RPG books yeah. that this guy has put out. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's that's my example. Um, it is. I am a bit conflicted about it, but ultimately, I I I'm able to kind of move on. Yeah, I've so I've been thinking about this topic ever since we brought it up as a possible topic here, and my I guess my overall thoughts are these: like we we use the term like canceling, right, or cancel culture, or or this guy's cancel, like. Me not listening to Kanye West or me not buying a Tesla because Elon Musk is a hyper-capitalist and, and uh, uh, doesn't care about his uh, workers' well-being. Me not deciding to ever purchase a, RK a J.K. Rowling book uh, or any Harry Potter video game, for example. That's, that's not me canceling any of them. Like I do not have the power to do so. I, I am just one person with a small purchasing power uh, and they're still going to continue to be millionaires or in the case of JK Rowling and Elon Musk billionaires. Um, and it's almost uh, in my end, like I'm not even viewing it as a, Oh, well, if everybody joins me, like we, we can start a movement and, and uh, it'll actually uh, hurt them and they'll, they'll change their ways. To me, it's like for these people, they really had to do a lot to lose that goodwill. Right? Like, they really had to go out of their yeah. way. Like, Kanye West is running for president just so he can undermine an election. Like, that's a huge thing that you have to do for me to finally be like, okay, fuck it. And for me, it's it's such a minor thing. It's it's literally the least I could do. Like, it's for as much enjoyment I would get out of listening to a Kanye West album or a really good Harry Potter video game if one were to exist. Um, like, it's minimal compared to to the suffering that they cause or the pain that uh, that they cause towards certain communities or how they, they undermine an election or how they treat their workers. Like it's, it's the smallest thing I could do. And I think it's, that's how I view it. Like I, I don't lose that much. I don't like as much as I enjoy a Kanye West album, there are other great rappers or, or hip hop artists or musicians in general that I can take out plenty of enjoyment from. Uh, there are other great uh, fantasy literature out there. There's other great fantasy literature out there uh, for me to not need to to read a Harry Potter book ever again. Um, these are just an easy choice that if I if I consider myself like a community, uh, I'm sorry, an ally of the trans community, uh, if I consider myself a fan of democracy, uh, if I consider myself supportive of just sensible workers' rights. For me to to just not praise these people is the least they could do for what just to back away for the horrible shit that they needed to do to get to this point. And that and I'm sorry if I was kind of an eloquent saying that, but that's that's just my perspective of it, if it makes sense. Yeah. I just uh wanted to say one more thing about JK Rowling. Um it was really surprising to me to hear about this, because when you're reading Harry Potter books, it's all about accepting people. And I mean, that's why I think a lot of people love it and have learned from it, but it's so, it fundamentally changes everything about Harry Potter. If she, if she's truly like this, yeah, it means that you shouldn't really, or it's, she's like, she 
she preaches it, but she doesn't actually do it, you know? Practice it. Yeah. 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 Yeah, And it's really like the last thing I want to say is if there's something I learned from this is let's, let's stop using the term of like, oh, this person's a genius or this person's a hero or this person is making the world a better place just because we enjoy their product. Steve Jobs did not make the work, the world a better place. Uh, Elon Musk is not making the world a better place. Uh, JK Rowling is not making the world a better place. They're just creating products. And it, it's very possible that they can do things and say things that should make us think twice about the products that they present to us. That's well said. Thank you. So ah, with that out of the way, let's talk about the thing I've been dying to talk about this whole episode. Uh, I know folks to our listeners that we're, we're covering a lot of ground here uh, and a lot of it is, is not, not something I honestly enjoy talking about. What, even though, let me qualify that. When I say that is I wish things were better. Uh, I think it's a good thing that we talk about it. But I do also want to talk about things I want to uh, talk about. Uh, when I started this podcast, I wanted to talk about video games. Uh, not the host of Celebrity Apprentice. However, in this universe, that, that wasn't meant to be. But I wanted to take this time, especially with our, our expert joining us today, uh, to talk about video games as a whole, like video games in 2020, uh, next-gen gaming, and of course, uh, a big piece of news that just came out earlier this week. So 2020 has been a bit of a weird year, right? Like when it comes to to video games, we, we had a cook, couple of uh, big releases at the beginning of the year, Doom Eternal, Final Fantasy VII Remake, Animal Crossing took over the world for, for quite a while. But like many things, like basically everything, the video game industry was heavily impacted by the coronavirus pandemic. And I want to actually talk about that because, Nack, as a game developer, you've been working on your video games remotely, correct me if I'm wrong, but since the since you started your studio, is that correct? Remote? Yes. Yeah. Yep. So I wanted to ask you, because a lot of these studios have obviously been heavily impacted. We kind of see it in this holiday lineup that looks weaker than usual, even though it's it's actually like a launch lineup for, for these next gen consoles. But even Nintendo's lineup looks a little weird where like, the big holiday game is some Hyrule Warriors game, which looks okay, but it's that's a weird yeah. that's a weird game for for Nintendo. That's like yeah, that's <laughs> so that's like a that's like a March March yeah. release, not a November release for sure. And but, I and yeah. I think it was it had to be one, right? Like that was the original plan, is is what I'm thinking. Uh, but obviously, yeah, a lot of things changed uh, for all of us and for a lot of developers. So I wanted you to just share your insight of. Even as somebody, you know, working with a small studio, uh, indie developer, you know the hardships of working remotely. And I just wanted to ask you, are there things you can think of that would impact studios that are like, that are manned by like 300, 200, 300 people working on million dollar budgets here? Yeah. So I think the first thing that comes to mind, probably, especially when you're looking at like AAA devs, um, is the the uh, you know i make games that are the art is very low budget in terms of memory requirements you know we're not we're not i'm not making 4k stuff um i'm not making 3d stuff it's all 2d 
you know, indie dev stuff. Uh, and I think that the if, if studios supply and, and studios do supply their their developers with the workstations that they need to create 3D models and textures, high res textures, and then to render those things out, that's I think m most people using or producing that sort of work. Um, maybe not most, but I, I imagine that some people producing work like that um, are going to be having a harder time at home without the full setup that they have in a studio. That's the very first thing that comes to my mind. Um, but I'm sure that as things progressed and the world kind of realized that we were going to be stuck at home for a while, um, especially, you know, game game studios, non-essential quote unquote, workers, uh, I imagine they were able to figure that out rather quickly. Um, the other thing that comes to mind too, though, for, and again, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm talking with regards to how I feel AAA would be right. impacted. Um, I, I think a lot of triple, what, what they benefit from what AAAs benefit from that would actually kind of aid in their transition to work from home is they've got producers and a producer's job is literally to just make sure that things get done on a timeline. Um, deadlines are met. Um, deadlines are, are set realistically. Um, and so to have that kind of coordination, um, a, a lot of indie studios don't have that luxury. They kind of, everybody kind of wears that hat uh together which makes it a very weird looking hat <laughs> that multiple people wear at the same time um and i think that the the biggest thing I, the other thing too sorry i'm kind of stumbling the the other thing i wanted to mention about equipment is dev kits dev kits are extremely expensive and typically a studio is not going to have access to one dev kit per developer. Like, well, not typically, never. That will never happen. Um, so I imagine the the what makes it difficult, especially when it comes time to uh, put the finishing touches on a game and um, and get it ready to ship. You've got to test the game on the dev kit uh, if you're if you're doing console. So like, sure, if the game runs on on PC, that's fine. Once you build it and compile it, the build runs on PC. But then you've got to export that build out to your dev kit and make sure it runs there. That I imagine would be uh, something that would take a lot more time if multiple people are working on the same project remote. And somebody's got to be the guy that builds it out to whatever whatever dev kit they're using, whatever console they're developing for, um, to to do testing and QA. Um, so yeah, I think it's it's interesting because I think in in some ways AAA is kind of well prepared for this sort of thing, and in other ways it's kind of, uh, I mean, it kind of probably uh, experiences the same issues that a lot of other industries are are experiencing yeah on indie the indie side of things it's kind of just how things have been yeah. <laughs> like uh 
um a, a lot of indie studios have made games remote um and that's because again a lot of the indie stuff is not going to be as technically demanding as triple a so they can be done on home computers um it can be done remote they're, <clears throat> they're not buying a lot of office space or anything yeah right um and uh yeah i mean most indie games are made in homes you know yeah. in bedrooms so um and so for me personally really nothing changed um in fact i kind of had more time to work because i my other job my real job was we were sent home and so i was teaching from home but um i got to have another window open on the side doing uh game dev stuff while i was grading work or whatnot so uh, I was actually just going to ask you, do you foresee this stabilizing, like perhaps next year? Do you see next year these developers, these larger studios, uh, this is just uh, business as usual because they're used to it now and you're just going to see a more steady um, release schedule than what we saw this this year, that we, which was so erratic in comparison? I don't know. That, I think this adds a little bit of time to every schedule. Even even once people get used to it, there are still some hurdles that just there's some some not hurdles speed bumps right. Yeah. There's some things that are just going to slow down the development process. I think mostly with regards to dev kits and playtesting and QA that sort of thing. But I think like in terms of producing the work, I think that that side of things has probably uh, somewhat um kind of stabilized like you're saying yeah because i was going to say i mean they i'm sure many publishers are hoping and wishing that uh releases get a little bit more consistent because uh next not next month but the month after in november we are going to get the launches of two major uh platforms uh, the PlayStation 5 will be released, I believe, November the 12th. And just two days before that, uh, Microsoft is going to release their uh, products, which are two of them. It's the Xbox Series S, which and that's S as in Sierra, which is their lower-end product uh, coming in at uh, $300. And then the Xbox Series X, which is their premium product, at $500. Uh, they both started pre-orders, um, I believe. Both of them started to last week or this week, I think, for Microsoft last week for Sony. And they were both a shit show. Um, I was able to pre-order an Xbox Series X, so yay for me. I did it in the middle of while training at work, so it was a particularly um, difficult endeavor, but I was able to accomplish it. But it was a mess. Uh, websites were down. Retail, retail websites were down for both of them. Uh, Sony came out first, and theirs was kind of a surprise. They, they had a... Um, a showcase, a, a PlayStation showcase to unveil the price of the uh, PlayStation 5, which their price I didn't mention is $500 for the uh, disc version and uh, $400 for the discless version. Uh, and so they they came out with their showcase and they said pre-orders were the next day. So it was a big surprise and it was a shit show. Microsoft was different. They, they, they had time to prep and they told their... Um, uh, their followers that it was going to be the uh, a week later and they had a week to to plan it out it was equally a shit show it was the exact same thing yeah. <laughs> so it was the exact same thing. yeah so that was a mess and uh, and still 
it it does show that there are there is a pent up demand for for these consoles and people even despite the economy and despite a lot of people losing their jobs unfortunately there's still a lot of people the fact that they're working from home that they want these consoles so the demand is high um we'll see how it turns out but i don't know do, are you guys uh, specifically like any of you i know some of you are pc gamers but uh, are any of you looking into getting any of these next gen consoles soon, or are you confused by it? Because a lot of it is very confusing, um, especially on the Microsoft side of things. I've gone out of my way to not figure out the difference between the Xbox X Series S and the Xbox S Series X and the Xbox X Series <laughs> X. So I don't actually know which yeah, that's one it. You is got the it. good one and which one is the bad one. No, that is the good one. The one you, the one yeah. that you yeah. said, is the good one. Don't get any. Don't, of get, the other don't one. get the other one. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, <laughs> I, I'm. I always wait for this stuff to kind of shake out. Um. Because, jumpy. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like there's always some some shit going on where there's like an early price drop. There's some massive problem with the first run. The the sort of launch era games are never anything to write home about <laughs> so my inclination is always to sort of wait and see how it shakes out and then take advantage of the slightly cheaper games and possibly cheaper console a year year and a half into it um i have an infinite backlog so <laughs> so i'm not in like a huge rush to keep adding to it yeah and i think especially for this launch cycle it's that's probably the best thing to do for a lot of people especially people that own either the xbox one x to to get even more confusing or the playstation 4 pro which is the those were the incremental um releases that were done in the previous generation those people are probably okay for for a good while they don't need to really rush rush to to uh, get one of these next gen consoles i'm really getting one because my one s is a piece of shit and I want to replace it. So I think it's time. Um, Sam, you, I know you are mainly a PC gamer. I do know you, that you own a, a Switch, but do any of these consoles get your attention or are you going to hold out for now? Um, I mean, I, I, I really like the look of the PS5. I know a lot of people are making fun of it, but I think it's really innovative. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm still, like, I, like Daniel said, I'm going to probably wait a while. Until I get it, um, like I'm a PC gamer most of the time anyway. And the games that I play on console, either sports games or you know games I couldn't get on PC. Yeah, you know, it's worth noting. Sam yeah. recently upgraded his PC. I actually haven't upgraded my PC in six years, so. Well, recently is like a year ago. I am not a PC gamer whatsoever, but was it Nvidia or? Uh... Who's the other one? AMD. Wasn't there a, a recent one that they they also put up for pre-orders, like a massive? Breath? Yeah, that one is like fifteen hundred dollars, though, isn't it? Yeah, the uh, it's the RTX thirty eighty, I think. Is that right? Yeah, it's supposed to like destroy all like console video cards, but it's like who would pay? Who has the money to buy that? Right the now? price of four consoles. Yeah. And that's always where I've stood as kind of a console gamer. I honestly now more than ever, I've been thinking like maybe it's just simpler if I just build a PC and uh, even if I spend like a thousand dollars, but especially with this kind of confusion with the Xbox Series X or Series S and this one does this thing and this way, it's getting just as equally complicated as what PC used to be for me. And that's why I never touched it. Um, 
but it's still like every time I look at it, and and I'm I would build the PC strictly to just use it as a gaming device because I have an iMac and that's always been my preferred uh, platform in terms of an actual PC. Uh, so it's just never been worth the investment. So I'm back back on just the Series X for and that's going to be my main console for for the future. I think Game Pass is a really a really compelling service that drives me to yeah. to that device. So remember to buy an Xbox Series really F think... this holiday season. Yes. <laughs> I really think that the people who are going to who will gain the most from this by jumping in right now and 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 getting in on this generation, this upcoming generation, uh console generation are people who previously were Sony PlayStation owners who are now looking towards the next generation and thinking of the games that they played. And I guess this is perhaps a good segue into probably what you want to talk about next. But looking ahead at what games are going to be available on Xbox platforms, whether it's the X or the S or just game pass for pc which is kind of under the xbox brand anyway um that's i mean that's the offering there is huge and uh i think we i don't remember if we mentioned the they do have a financing option for it's like pretty i think 35 dollars a month is that right and you get game pass ultimate uh and an Xbox Series X. Yes, um, is that correct? It's $35 a month for the Xbox or Xbox Series X and Game Pass Ultimate and it's $25 a month for the Xbox Series S and Xbox Ultimate. Uh, to further add to the confusion. That's why I didn't bring it up, but it's <laughs> right. it's actually a good point because I think oh, for okay. a lot of people it's it's uh that's how they're going to get this uh this product. Dude, the value there is for, for which one? Roof. Like that is insane. Like, kind of either one. I mean, the X too, or the S. But just the fact that you get Game Pass, or, or are you just being <laughs> the fact that you get Game Pass and a console for twenty five or thirty five dollars a month is, I mean, if you look at the games that release on Game Pass, the number of games on there right now and coming soon is staggering and it's not like it's not like bargain bin games these are like brand new and you get it for pc and xbox yes yeah but i'm i'm talking specifically about people who do not have a pc who were who were playstation fanboys um uh, there's a there is a lot of incentive to go the microsoft route what's the killer app uh, other than, I mean, I guess Game Pass is kind of the. Yeah, there is none. Yeah. That is that. It's it's there, there is, is no like Halo Infinite was supposed to probably be the closest to it, but that got delayed because um, uh, probably most likely because of the pandemic that's going on. Plus, it wasn't well received when it yeah. was uh, uh, revealed. And yeah, um, but um, yeah, there. I don't. I'm for example, I'm I pre-ordered this thing, like the Xbox Series X, and there is no one game that I'm dying to play. What I want is an upgraded device, a powerful device that can that has Game Pass and it has a fast SSD, and I can just take advantage of every single game on it and it'll all look as best as it possibly could. 
which right now my 1S does not. They could barely run that Ori game, which is like this 2D platform game. Um, so that, yeah. that's why I'm buying it. It's, it's strictly so I can have access to that service and have that service run as, as best as it possibly could without getting an actual upgraded, like a beefy PC. So are you going to do that monthly thing? Did you buy I was going to, but then I couldn't figure out how to do it during that uh, shit show of a, of a pre-order release. So I just got it the, the first way I found out how, which was just the Best Buy pre-order. So I bought it outright. <laughs> I just spent the $540 okay. with tax. Um, but we're just going to end it on the last piece of news that just broke last week, which is Microsoft buying... Bethesda's parent company, Zenimax, I believe is the name of the parent company. So they own Bethesda, which obviously huge, Skyrim, Fallout. Uh, they also own id Software, famous for Doom and Wolfenstein, um, Arcane, um, is it Arcane Studios, um, among other studios. I mean, it's, it's, it's a massive acquisition. It's perhaps the biggest acquisition in video game history. I'm, I struggle to I think. I think it, it's got to be. Yeah. It's got to be, right? Uh, yeah. Microsoft bought them for $7.5 billion, which, just to give some context, Disney spent $4 billion to buy Lucasfilms, <laughs> Star Wars. So and, this is pretty much twice that. And also, four, four, also $4 billion for Marvel. for Marvel. So almost for the cost of Marvel and Star Wars is what Microsoft was willing to pay for Bethesda. So, Nack, what do you think? Like, so, do you see this as, as some sort of game changer? Like, or do you just think it's going to be? Yes. Yeah. What... I totally. Yeah, this is huge. So for a couple of reasons, they're obviously the very short term um, outcome or, or, or tangible meaning that this has is that Doomguy is now a Coming Microsoft <laughs> IP, right? Yeah. <laughs> Um, like, I mean, you know, what else? Um, Skyrim dude, Dragonborn, Dovahkiin is now a Microsoft intellectual property. Yeah. Is there going to be a Maeve to make those? Has a lot of probably not, right? Does not seem so. What they've the the games that have already been announced, some of them they've already said if it's been announced for multiple platforms or and or consoles, they will still be coming to those consoles. But dude, I I guarantee you, give it a year and you're gonna start seeing Xbox only or or Game Pass only Bethesda releases. I can almost guarantee it. That's that's why they did this. That is literally there's no reason to spend seven point five billion dollars if you if you're not securing that exclusivity. And that kind of brings me into why I think this is a bigger deal for gaming in general and um, for the industry as we look five to 10 years ahead. I think now this trend is going to continue. And I think we're going to start seeing, I bet you Sony and, and I'm, I am kind of, I got this idea um, from, or I, I I'm kind of repeating some ideas that were set forth by Maximilian, a YouTuber, kind of a fighting game YouTuber. I don't know if you guys are familiar with him, but I totally agree with what he said, which is that, I, I can bet you uh, Sony is looking at Capcom right now. Sony is looking at what else? Um, Konami, dude. Those, Capcom is... Yeah, right. Those <laughs> <Pachinko> <laughs> um, yeah. 
Did you know Konami makes like medical equipment? I did not know that. Yeah, I think they make all kinds um, of. But like, I, you, yeah, um, but yeah, like you can totally see Sony say Sony already kind of has a, a good relationship with Capcom. Um, they were able to get Street Fighter Five to be exclusive console exclusive to the PlayStation and funded that game. Um, and I mean, they've always kind of been, you know, through the Resident Evil games and Devil May Cry, those games kind of had, felt like they were at home on Sony systems. Um, I could totally see Sony buying Capcom. Um, there was another really good example and I can't think of it, but, but I totally think that this is as games, as the games industry transitions to a, uh, a place where we we see games as a service or as a live service uh kind of like the netflix thing right as we stop seeing games being sold piecemeal and start seeing them being sold as a as being included in some service that you subscribe to yeah um it's going to make sense for huge companies like sony and microsoft to just start buying up publishers to say you you no longer put Street Fighter games out on any other system. You no longer put, you know, Capcom belongs to Sony now, right? I can totally see that happening. Sort of reversing um, course. Yeah. And I so that's what I think it means. I feel like the the move for the last generation was right. the end of sort of exclusives. Everything kind of yeah. was on everywhere. I feel like this is the very beginning of a yeah. kind of splitting off into making more exclusives. Yeah. Like it's it's it doesn't feel like it was that long ago that we were super like we could not believe that Sonic was going to be yeah. in a Nintendo game. You know what I mean? Like, like, and this is kind of going back towards before that, where it was very much you picked your team and you stuck with that, right? Um, yeah. And so I I I totally see this going the subscription. Um, if if the games that you like, if the publishers that you like are on. The Microsoft side of things, you get Game Pass. And and also, I think it's important to also note that Sony has got to be figuring out some sort of games subscription service um, to to have an answer to Game Pass. They've just, I it's got to be going on. If it's not, I don't. I don't know how they can compete yeah. because well, they did, the value of Game Pass, I think. They did unveil, I believe it's called like the PlayStation Collection or something like that. That's uh, somewhat of a similar platform, yeah. except it's really based on like a lot of big PS4 hits um, and uh, not a huge catalog right now. But it's yeah. it's obviously an attempt. Like it's, 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 it's Sony recognizing what Microsoft did and says we have to put something out there and then we have to build upon it as we go along right now it's not nowhere it's yeah. nowhere near uh, as as uh well their offering is nowhere near as good as game pass is offering but who knows over time that that could be worked on and i do think it's interesting now because you know you mentioned sony and microsoft and you know the usual suspects but just today amazon just uh, unveiled a, a new game subscription service as well uh, and they mentioned that they have over 100 really? games Holy so shit. i i think we're gonna start seeing more um unusual players uh, and big hitters so google is still and amazon makes sense right yeah yeah go ahead yeah yeah amazon and google totally makes sense right like stadia makes sense they've got the back end 
and servers to make that happen, especially for games as a streaming service. Because what we've been talking about, Game Pass is not a streaming service. It is, or it's not strictly a streaming service. Uh, you still download the games on your hardware. But like Amazon, uh, Google, totally equipped to provide a streaming gaming service. Um, and I, yeah, I that's that's the way things are going to go. And I think this Bethesda acquisition is the result of that and will and also will perpetuate that. Yeah. As we look into the future of games, games, games. Well, I'm glad to have more games coming soon. We can add reverb to that little effect (laughs) that I did. Uh, But let's go ahead and end in there. Uh, Well said, Nack. I agree 100%. Uh, so, folks, thank you so much. Uh, well, before anybody, uh, anything, I want to say thank you, Nick. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, you have an open seat here on this podcast. So whenever you want to join, just let us know and we'll bring you on. But thank you so much. Thank you. Dan- it was fun. This is my first podcast ever. Well, you, so that was cool. You did great. And Daniel. I think I killed it. You did. All right. In fact, you want to take the hosting stuff up? Uh, off my shoulders. I need some help over here. <laughs> sure, yeah. Uh, yeah. Daniel, any uh, final thoughts? <laughs> no, thanks. That was quick. Uh, I could go on about Trump and how he killed people, but I won't. Uh, that's okay. And Sam, thank you for joining us today as well. Thanks. And to our listeners, thank you so much for joining us. Please stay tuned next week for yet another episode of Friendly Reminder.